You are listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Our guest today is General David Petraeus, who, as all of you will recall, served as director of the CIA following a distinguished career spanning nearly four decades in the United States Army, where among his many assignments included commanding U.S. Central Command and commanding general of the multinational force in Iraq, where he oversaw all coalition forces from February 2007 to September 2008, the time of the surge, which is recognized as a key turning point in the Iraq War. Welcome, sir. Good to be back. Thanks. General Martin Dempsey, who retired a year ago as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, recently said, today is the most dangerous period in my lifetime. Do you agree with this very sober assessment? Well, how could I possibly disagree with my great classmate and friend, Marty Dempsey, with whom I was privileged to serve for a number of years in Iraq and a variety of other places? Certainly, it is among the most complex and challenging times, if not the most complex in our lifetimes. I'm always a little cautious, though, about saying the most dangerous when you consider the face-off that used to exist between the Soviet Union and NATO in Western Europe and also, of course, the nuclear forces that were pointed at each other still are, to be sure, but I would think that there's a few more minutes on the nuclear clock than used to be back in the Cold War days. It's been now over a year since the Obama administration announced the nuclear deal with Iran, and it certainly has been controversial, certainly in our country, but also among our key allies in the Arab Gulf and in Israel. At the time, President Obama said that this agreement would make the world safer. Do you believe that Iran is still a dangerous and hostile regime with a clear path to nuclear weapon? Well, let me start just by describing the nuclear deal, which I think has some very positive elements and it also has some negative elements. And then there are a whole variety of issues that are not addressed by it. And I think that's one of the challenges in this particular case. The positive elements, all the medium enriched uranium is gone. 99% of the low enriched uranium is gone number of centrifuges spinning cut by over half. The plutonium path to a bomb is ended by pouring cement into the reactor core of that particular element. And then the deeply buried site is now a research facility and there are quite intrusive inspection regimes. Having said that, the whole deal lasts 10 to 15 years, depending on the different elements of it, at the end of which we will find out whether or not Iran is intent on pursuing a path to a nuclear weapon. And beyond that is the fact that this deal has unfrozen for Iran, tens of billions of dollars, probably some in total somewhere around 50 billion, not quite what was talked about during the debate over this particular deal. And it has allowed Iran to gradually re-enter the international economy to begin exporting more oil and so forth, which means that it has more money, not just for its citizens and worthy deeds, but also for the Revolutionary Guards Corps, Quds Force, and other much more nefarious activities that are supported by Iran, which is one of three countries, after all, that is a designated terrorist supporter. Iran has shored up the Bashar al-Assad regime, the murderous Bashar al-Assad regime in, in Syria. It's funded it. It's provided the Lebanese Hezbollah, which it funds and trains and equips. Quds Force advisors are on the ground. Even some uh, actual Iranian forces are on the ground with Shia militia that Iran has also funded, trained, equipped, and supported. And now, of course, Russia is in there as well. There's no question, I don't think, that Iran is what would be termed a revolutionary power rather than a status quo power. Mm -hmm. It is not satisfied with the status quo. It wants to solidify the Shia crescent that it would like to see run from 
Tehran through Baghdad to Damascus and down into southern Lebanon, Lebanese Hezbollah territory. It is supporting the Houthi rebels in, in Yemen, supporting Shia militia in Iraq, whom it would like to use as Lebanese Hezbollah in Lebanon. It, in fact, as my great partner Ryan Crocker, the ambassador during the surge, used to say Iran would like to Lebanonize Iraq if it could. And it's supporting a variety of other unsavory elements, terrorist groups, Hamas. So, so given all uh, this, how can we hold them in check if you were advising the well, next president? Well, I think what the next president should do is reach out to Congress. He or she would say, I want to work with Congress to achieve a statement of national policy, which would be that Iran will never be allowed to enrich to weapons grade then ensure that that capability is maintained. I'm keenly aware of what that is and what it takes, having been the commander of U.S. Central Command when we finalized our various contingency plans. And then also to state publicly and then work with our allies and partners in the region that we will counter malign Iranian influence in these different locations that I've detailed for you. You know, just this week the president indicated that we'd be increasing our troop strength in Iraq and I gather that the Iraqi troops are on the verge of hopefully taking back Mosul. But that's going to open up a, a whole new, if I may say, a can of worms. It's one thing to capture that territory, to clear it, but will they be able to govern it? Well, that is the big question. I've said for quite some time now, I think really a matter of years at this point, that the real threat in Iraq is not the Islamic State, that ultimately we would enable the Iraqis to work with them, that the coalition would help them defeat the Islamic State appears to be absolutely inevitable. And each of the battles is getting a bit easier. This will be a tough fight. It's a city of two million people. They'll be dug in. They'll have tunnels. There'll be improvised explosive devices and all kinds of nefarious tactics and techniques employed. But at the end of the day, we have been beating up on the Islamic State in Iraq and also in Syria uh, increasingly. And again, this is going to happen. There's a saying we used to use, you know, don't clear until you know how you're going to hold. And I'd actually amend that to say don't clear until you know how you're going to hold and govern. And you may have seen uh, an article I wrote recently reflecting back on my time in Mosul mm -hmm. when I was privileged to command the 101st Airborne Division and after the fight to Baghdad we, we went north to Nainua province and Mosul. And I described the population there as the most complex human terrain in all of Iraq. I mean, we're all well acquainted with the violence of Anbar province. Frankly, that's pretty straightforward, even though it has Fallujah and Ramadi and others. It's 99% Sunni Arab. And once you clear the uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, or as it used to be, or now the Islamic State extremist elements from it, then it's a matter of tribal negotiations and so forth. But you don't have the sectarian issues, nor the ethnic issues that you have in northern Iraq, in Nainoa province, the capital of which is Mosul. There you have a Sunni Arab majority, to be sure, but you have Shia Arabs as well. You have Turkmen Shia, you have some Turkmen Sunnis, you have Kurds as well as Arabs, and the Kurds are split between three political parties right now. That that are at, right. at considerable odds with one another. There are even odds within some of those parties. Uh, you have Christians, you have Yazidis, you have Shabak, and the list goes on and on. And even within these different elements, there is division. The Sunni Arabs are split to some degree between the previous governor and the current governor, and then there are the Muslawis, those in the city, and then the, those that are out in the western part of the province, uh, a good 50 or more miles out, who are much more tribal and, and uh, those out in the, the desert, if you will. So this is going to be hugely challenging. There are a lot of grievances. There are forces in areas over which there is going to be significant contention. 
and keenly aware of this, having arrived in Mosul at a time when it was anarchic, it was literally in flames in some areas, and 17 Iraqis have been killed during a riot a couple well, of days before Well, let me we ask you this. There. Is the former prime minister, al-Maliki, is, is he still stirring the pot? And does he, he have is very much still stirring the pot. This is now, now we're transitioning to Baghdad politics, so we're talking about politics for all of Iraq. And he is very much stirring the pot. Uh, he is behind the two recent initiatives to have a vote of no confidence that ended up in the departure of the Minister of Defense, and then subsequently the, the departure of a highly respected Kurdish political leader, Hushar Zabari, who was the Minister of Foreign Affairs under Prime Minister Maliki and did a superb job, and now has been the Minister of Finance under Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi. Clearly, Prime Minister Maliki is bent on taking down the Prime Minister who replaced him, Prime Minister who knows that inclusive politics are necessary, that what we did during the surge has to be once again replicated. Ironically, that was done when Prime Minister Maliki was our partner, of course, and sustained for three and a half years until he pursued highly ruinous sectarian initiatives that alienated the Sunni Arab population from the rest of Iraq, from the Shia Arab-led government, created the fertile fields once again for the planting of the seeds of extremism, and also because he denied our efforts to help him keep the Islamic State down. It was defeated, destroyed, really, during the surge and kept down beyond that. It was then able to get back up off its stomach. I've never been sure that 10,000 troops remaining on the ground would have made a difference in terms of being able to influence him not to do what he did. I certainly would have liked to have had those 10,000 troops on the ground so that we could have much more rapidly enabled the Iraqis to go on the offensive after stopping the Islamic State when it came in and defeated the Iraqi security forces early on. That might have made a big difference. It could have. I've said on numerous occasions that speed matters when you are fighting a group like the Islamic State because their success in social media in particular is partly due because they're seen as winners. And the sooner that you can show that they're losers is the sooner that they can't recruit as effectively abroad. They don't inspire people as much. Obviously, they are failing. I wish we had a lot more time, but before we conclude, we've already talked about some tough issues, and this is certainly an uncertain time, but you describe yourself as a rational optimist. Take a minute and say why we should all become rational optimists. Well, certainly Americans should be rational optimists. I think we have enormous opportunities. We are already exploiting them in many cases, leading the world in so doing when it comes to the IT revolution, the energy revolution, which obviously citizens here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area know very, very well. Absolutely. Uh, the manufacturing revolution and the life sciences revolution. And all of these are a result of the unique combination of attributes and qualities that our great country and our citizens have demonstrated over centuries. I actually teach a course, in fact, it's called the North American Decades, which is how I describe the period we're in currently. We're beyond the American century, we're not yet in the Chinese or Asian century. And the question is how many decades, and that depends a great deal at the end of the day on what Washington does and whether or not the White House and Congress, and indeed within the Congress, there can be folks who are willing to engage in that act which is described by a dirty word, compromise, and actually move forward and deal with some headwinds that are preventing us from achieving all that we could, turning them into, into tailwinds, issues such as comprehensive immigration reform, such as international trade, such as investment in infrastructure, such as education reform. There's quite a considerable list. Candidates discuss these. 
The question is, can you turn these lofty ideas and objectives into reality by politics on Capitol Hill and then working together with the White House? That's a big question. The omnibus bill passed last year that Speaker Paul Ryan played such a key role in was quite admirable in that regard. It had a number of different issues in it that were finally resolved as far afield as, you know, investing in not just highways, but much, much more than that in infrastructure, all the way to changing the IMF voting rights as they should have been changed years ago to satisfy legitimate Chinese uh, aspirations Well, and hopefully requests. we'll begin to make some progress along the lines that you advise. Thank you so much for being That's with my us, hope General David Petraeus. Great, great to be back with you, Jim. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.